Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, um, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, go to www.discipledojo.org and you can submit questions through the contact page there. Without further ado, let's get into this session. We are jumping back into Genesis chapter 1 today. We're going to walk through the text, we're going to point out some things that you may or may not have noticed, and uh, hopefully by the end we'll have a better understanding of what Genesis 1 actually teaches. There's a lot of misinformation in terms of what gen- people come to Genesis 1 with all of their questions in hand. Okay, I want to I want to learn what the Bible says about science. I want to learn what the Bible says about the Big Bang. I want to learn what the Bible says about dinosaurs or uh, geology or global floods or Grand Canyon or any of these kind of things. So let me come and let me just start asking all these questions about the text or show why the text is untrustworthy and these were ancient pagan or ancient savage people who knew nothing about science depending on which side you're on. Well, the best thing to do when you're reading any book of the Bible, any passage in the Bible, is go, what would the original audience have heard? What would they have understood? That's question numero uno. What would the original audience have taken from this? And then, after you've asked that question, after you've explored that question, then you can say, okay, now how does this fit with all the questions that I have, a modern audience? But a lot of times, again, people do that in reverse. And so we want at Disciple Dojo, we want you to be capable readers of Scripture. And we don't want you to read into Scripture things that Scripture itself does not say. Because that's where you get all kinds of um, contradictions, aberrations, even cults pop up that way. So rather, we want to take the meaning out of Scripture. What does it say? And then how does that apply to my life? Rather than what do I think? And then how can I read Scripture to teach what I think? So in Genesis 1, right from the get-go, we realize that we're thrown into another world. We're thrown into the world of the ancient Near East, the cosmological myths that we saw last week that we looked at that were floating around in Israel's, among Israel's neighbors, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, all of these people, the Canaanites, they had their own creation myths, they had their own gods and goddesses and their own stories, and Israel is no different in one sense, which is it had its own story, that Israel had things that it wanted to share, that it had ways that it spoke of its God uh, that were similar to the surrounding cultures. But Israel also was very different in terms of the other ancient Near East cultures in the actual events of its creation story or, or, or its origin account. And that's the first thing we see when we come to Genesis 1. We're just going to read in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Breshit bara Elohim. Eth hashamayam va'eth ha'aretz. That's it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens and the earth, that's a phrase. Heavens and the earth, it's a merism. It's where you talk about the, the extremities of something and you really mean everything in between. So like we say A to Z, first to last, alpha and omega, from the cradle to the grave. Um... These are ways that we speak of the totality of everything. 
And Genesis 1 does that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's everything created. Everything visible, everything tangible, visible, perceptible by humans, heavens and the earth. So actually, Genesis 1 is the creation account. Genesis 1, verse 1, is the creation account. There's nothing that wasn't created in Genesis 1.1. It's all there. And now the text is going to recapitulate. That's a fancy word for telling a, an event all up front and then jumping back to a focus in on a particular part of that event and telling it in more detail. That's what we're going to have in Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.2, and then Genesis chapter 2. We'll see the same thing. So you're going to have telling of an event, and then jumping back and retelling it with greater detail or greater emphasis. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. In the beginning, God. This is what separates Genesis 1 from many other creation accounts, is God's already existent. There is no cosmogony in Genesis 1. There is no, how did, who made God? Where did God come from? Well, kids ask that question all the time. But Genesis 1 posits something that's pretty philosophically advanced is that God has no beginning by definition because if he had a beginning, he would not be God. The thing that existed before him would be God. The reality that existed before him would by definition be the divine and he would be brought into, he'd be a contingent being. And so we don't see that in Genesis 1. We don't see any contingency in God. He is the reality from which everything else flows. Now, Genesis 1 doesn't unpack this. It doesn't speak of this in platonic or philosophical categories. It just states it as a given fact. In the beginning, God. He's right there at the beginning. And so, one, that lets us know this is not a God who's contingent. This is not a God who's brought into being. There are no birth of the gods in the Hebrew scriptures, like there are in Greco-Roman mythology, Canaanite mythology, Babylonian mythology. There's not that. So right off the bat, Genesis 1 sets a remarkable tone in the ancient Near East. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now we move immediately. Genesis 1.1 is everything. Everything from the Big Bang, if you believe in the Big Bang, I do. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. Whatever you think the creation account was, that's everything. Everything from that to the surface of the earth, whenever you think that was. If you hold to standard uh, cosmology in a scientific sense, that was billions of years that are just skipped over to get us right to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the surface of the earth because that's where all the action is going to take place. The Bible, the biblical story is going to unfold on the earth among humanity. And so it's jumping to that point. It's not telling about any of the geological ages of the past when humans didn't exist. It's not telling about any of the things that we want to know about galaxy formation and where did quasars come from and neutron stars and, and uh, you know, the solar system, its composition. It doesn't tell us. It's just jumped right to now the surface of the earth. And it tells us the surface of the earth was tohu vavohu, formless and empty, uninhabited and uninhabitable is how you could translate. It's kind of an onomatopoeia word in Hebrew, tohu vavohu, mess, 
like we'd say higgledy piggledy or hodgepodge these these terms that are just they don't have any technical meaning as such but they connote a sense of chaos and um of just desolation it's used in the bible later to describe what god's going to do to jerusalem and and kingdoms that that rise against him he'll make them desolate tohu so the sense is now we're on the surface of the earth and it's this chaotic uninhabitable uninhabited watery depth the abyss this 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 mess but the spirit of god Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God is hovering over these waters. The Spirit of God is in this mess. And when the Spirit of God is in this mess, things are going to get unmessy at His command. That's what we see happening in the rest of this opening chapter of Genesis. It gives us hope, by the way, for today. Our world's a mess. I mean, on Facebook right now, if you're just scrolling, you probably have five articles by crazy uncles or aunts who are ranting about conspiracies. You probably have... 10 articles about black lives mattering and 15 about all lives mattering. And you probably have people yelling at each other. You've probably been yelled at. I had a Christian brother just say some horrible, nasty things to me last night just because I challenged an art argument he was making. Actually, he was misquoting my argument. But people, it's like people lose their minds once you get on social media. And social media becomes tohu babohu. Social media becomes desolate a mess and people are tempted to just unplug or they're tempted to check out or they're tempted to contribute to the mess. God is hovering, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. He's going to bring creation. He's going to bring something very good, something tov ma'od in Hebrew, very good out of tohu vavohu, something that's a mess. How much more could he do in our culture? How much more could he do through social media if we let him how much more uh, can God overcome the forces of chaos in our own culture if we let him? But that's a sermon, and this isn't preaching. This is teaching. So let's get back to it. Verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The surface of the tahom. This is this word. It kind of means abyss or depths. It has resonances with other cognate languages terms for their god of chaos. Uh, it, does, it, it doesn't mean that's what this verse is saying, but it resonates. It alludes possibly to other cultures' forms of chaos. So the Babylonians, for instance, they had a chaos god or entity known as Tiamat. And Tiamat and Tehom that they're probably at least related. It's not a one-to-one -one thing, of course, but there's probably in the, the concepts are, are semantically related. So for the Babylonians, the Babylonians' creation myth, which you can read, the Enuma Elish, and then you can read their flood story, the Atrahasis epic. In the Babylonian account, Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, he had to go up against in combat and slay the chaos monster, Tiamat, the monster of the abyss. And he, 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 you can read it. He says, I split her body in half like a shellfish. And with half of Tiamat, half of the corpse of the abyss, the chaos serpent, Marduk, the Babylonian god, created the sky. And with the other half, he created the land. Other cultures have similar accounts. It's called the combat myth. 
in ancient Near East myths. It's there's a God and it's usually your patron God and that God overcomes chaos, that God overcomes the forces of darkness or overcomes something outside of himself in order to bring about creation and his people. And that's uh, the peoples throughout the ancient Near East had variations on this type of myth. Well, in Genesis 1, we get echoes of that. It's like we get as close to that as we can, and then the text takes a drastic left turn. And so, yeah, there was watery abyss. There was tohu vavohu. There was a mess. There was the tehom, almost like Tiamat is right there, uh, at least in the hearers that would be hearing this in the early um, ancient Near East. But instead of now... This is where we would expect, if we were a typical ancient Near Easterner, we would expect, okay, this is where the Hebrew God is going to fight the abyss. The Hebrew God is going to fight Tiamat, the Tehom, the, the forces of chaos. And that's how they think that they came into being. No, that's exactly not what we find. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and morning the first day. No combat. There's no, God has, doesn't have to struggle. Whoever this Hebrew God is, we're going to find out later in the next chapter. His name is Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Yahweh is going to be his covenant name. But in this chapter, he's just Elohim. He's just God. And some people say it's because different sources were compiled together in Genesis 1, uses Elohim, and then Genesis 2, Yahweh Elohim, so that shows there were two different authors. That's a ridiculous theory. It's popular. It's the default theory among most um, comparative religion scholars and, and Old Testament scholars, uh, but it's, it's a silly criteria because the artistry, the, the intentionality of what the author is doing here is very profound. By calling God Elohim in this first chapter, he's positing him not as the special covenant God of Israel. They'll get to that. But right now, he is God. He is Elohim. He is the divine. He's the capital G God, capital E Elohim. And so the God of all the cosmos, not the God of the Babylonians, not the God of the Egyptians, not the God of the Assyrians, not the God of the Canaanites, the God of everything, that God of the heavens and the earth, it's a radical concept in the ancient world where gods were seen as territorial, where gods inhabited certain realms, and those realms and their peoples, that's where the god reigned, and then the gods over here and these peoples reigned, and if they ever got in a fight, whoever's god was stronger would be the one whose army won the battle, how the ancient world viewed it. So right off the bat, Israel's saying something incredibly profound, is that our god is not just another of the territorial gods. Our god is the source of everything. It starts with him. It all goes back in the beginning God. And our God doesn't have to fight against opposing forces because there are not any opposing forces. When God created, he did not create from a pre-existent mess. He created, and then as there was this state of messiness and uninhabitedness, as he was bringing things into being, the natural progression to bring it to order from chaos, he just speaks. He just speaks. And even the light obeys him. That's such a profound concept. The more we learn about light, the more profound that gets. But he speaks. There was light. He names the light and the darkness. He has authority even over the darkness. 
So in Genesis 1, God's authority is, is so far beyond what Israel's neighbors were used to hearing about in their gods. No battle. He just speaks. He's sovereign. God says, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the water to separate water from water. Some translations say dome or expansive dome or firmament or something. They try to translate this Hebrew word, rakiak, that, that doesn't have an English translation. I mean, it kind of literally refers to the underside of a dome or a vault, uh, vaulted ceiling. And so God, that's the image on a literal level that's being used. And said, let there be an expanse vault between the waters. Remember, everything's chaos and watery, dark mess. So light and dark have been differentiated. Now, let there be an expanse to separate waters from water. So God made the expanse to separate water under the expanse from water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening, there was morning the second day. So now we have a picture of what's going on. God is, God is continuing to bring order out of chaos. He's continuing to make what was uninhabitable and uninhabited habitable so that he can then fill it later with those that will inhabit it. And he's separating. Now this, this second day, first of all, when you talk about day, the word day in Hebrew, I don't care what a, a preacher tells you that you may have heard. Well, a day means a day, 24 hours. No, that's... The word is yom in Hebrew. Yom has at least five different meanings. You can look it up. Grab Holiday's Concise Hebrew Lexicon if you want a resource that's accessible, if you know Hebrew. At least five different meanings for yom. Yom can mean day, as in daytime, like when the sun is out, as contrasted with night. Yom can mean the whole cycle, a 24-hour day. Yom can mean a generic period of time, like we say back in the day, I used to do so. We don't mean one literal day. We just mean back in this period of time. Yom is also the way you say when in Hebrew. If I wanted to say when I was a young man, uh, I might say literally in the day of my to be a young man. That's how I'd say it in Hebrew. So in Genesis 2, 4, it'll say this is the account of the heavens and the earth when God created the earth and the heavens. Well, that when God created in NIV in other texts that are a little more literal, other translations, they'll leave it as in the day singular of God's creating the heavens and the earth. And, and it has that meaning of when. The last is sometimes yom uh, can mean very, very rarely, but sometimes it can mean wind or storm, like a massive gale force. Um, very rare, but it does have that meaning. At times, so five different meanings for the word yom. So when somebody says, "Well, the Bible says days," that's a day that settles it. It most certainly does not settle it. What it does is it lets us know that God is speaking about these events in the format of yoms, yamim in Hebrew, days. And whether those are literal days, whether those are heavenly days, whether it's pure symbolism. We have to find that out by reading the text. We don't decide that a priori and then read the text in light of that. That's how you start getting off on the wrong foot from the get-go. So on this second yom, what God does is he now, uh, what's, what's going on with waters above and waters below? Well, we also have to introduce another concept that's, here's your fun word for the day. Throw this out at your next cocktail party. Uh, phenomenological language phenomenological language phenomenon how something appears logos 
how you speak or words. Phenomenological means words about or describing how something appears rather than how something scientifically is. So here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this morning around six something, I don't know, I'm never up at this that time, but there was an event we called it sunrise. So if somebody said, hey, what time was sunrise this morning? Or when did the sun come up this morning? And I would say, oh, 6.48 or whatever. It would be crazy for someone to go, ah, 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 you pre-scientific, illiterate moron. Don't you know the sun doesn't rise? Don't you know that the earth spins in relationship to the sun? And I would say, well, of course I know that. I just, sunrise is a phenomenologically convenient way of saying that phenomenon. Well, the ancient world did the same thing, could do the same thing as well, describing something as it appears rather than how it actually scientifically is. And it's no more unscientific or backwards of them to do that than it is for me to chastise you for not calling or not telling me, oh, I saw the most beautiful earth rotation light refraction phenomenon. When you could just say, I saw the most beautiful sunset. Phenomenological language. So whether that's present in the text or not, is a fair question and we should look and and be open to that as a possibility heavens uh, uh sorry waters above waters below the firmament what could that mean well scientifically you could look for evidence of an ancient primordial ocean that used to surround the earth and, and creation scientists have done just that um or you could say well that's a pretty poetic and fitting sunrise type way of describing the precipitation cycle because ancient Near East herdsmen and farmers who lived off the land, who were the first people reading this account, they would have known, well, yeah, there's water up there. Because what color is the sky? Blue. And the oceans are blue. And every now and then, that water up there falls on us. In fact, if it doesn't, our crops die and our animals die. So there's water up there. We know it's up there. But there's something between us because I can't, no matter how high I climb, no matter how, what mountain I go to, I can't reach up and swish my hand around in it. I can't grab or splash any of the water, but it's up there because it falls on us. And so that would be a perfectly normal phenomenological way of describing what we know of today as the condensation, precipitation, the water cycle. Water's above, water's below, and expanse in between. So maybe that's phenomenological language. Maybe something else is going on. We don't know. But it's good to just hold that in mind as we continue to read because what's happening is something much more profound than just God giving us geology or, or meteoro meteorological lessons. Let's move on to this next yom. Verse 9, God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now this is where we'd expect the day, the yom, to break. But it doesn't. On this yom, God's going to do two things. The first thing, separate. So now dry ground appears. Whether that was over millions of years as the earth's plate tectonics pushed up parts of the crust which moved aside the waters that had once covered it all as the crust and mantle and everything settled in. Okay, pretty pretty cool way of describing that, if so, pretty condensed poetic way, but that's what you'd expect in a condensed, elevated prose account, which we find Genesis 1 to be. 
but regardless, what's happening is, is this place now of habitation is being brought into being and borders are being set and boundaries are being set. And then God's not done. Verse 11, God said, let the land produce vegetation. Fascinating concept. God doesn't say, I'm going to create pear trees and fig trees and grapevines and grass. He doesn't say that. I always thought he did. I mean, just as a kid reading, hearing this story told, I just thought God was just like pop, 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 bushes popping up and sprouting and, you know, that it was kind of, it's, the text doesn't say that. God actually gives the land the ability to bring forth new life. Now, this has to fit into whatever view you take about evolutionary biology, whether you're anti-evolution, whether you're theistic evolution, whether you're limited evolutionary views, macro, micro, any of that stuff. Doesn't matter what your views are. You, ha you have to understand that the Bible does not teach that God made specially every single thing. In fact, it says specifically, God said, let the land bring forth vegetation. So however you put that together in your geological, biological, taxonomical framework is up to you. But in the creation account in the Bible, there is the concept of creation, the land, bringing forth life. And that doesn't negate God as creator or author. So just let that do what it does to your own theology, your own view of everything. But that's what the text says. And that's what we always want to say. We, we don't, you don't want to uphold or defend what the text doesn't say. And if you're a skeptic and a critic, it's silly to spend your time bashing and knocking down caricatures of what you think the text says that it doesn't actually say. So both sides, fundamentalists and skeptics, are guilty of this so often of not letting the text say what it says and working with it from there, but rather in enforcing a particular literalistic grid onto it that the ancient readers not may not necessarily have held. And not allowing for things like phenomenological language, not allowing for things like uh, elevated prose or poetic hyperbole or artistic literary, because this is, again, this is a literary masterpiece. This is a literary origin story of a people. This is like we talked about last week, the preface, the, the, the voiceover of Lord of the Rings before the story begins. So all this stuff is helpful to keep in mind as we go through the text. God said, let the land produce vegetation. And then he only names two different types. There are only two types of vegetation that are mentioned. Verse 11, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that have fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. That's it. Only two types of vegetation are mentioned. And guess what? They just happen to be the two types of vegetation that ancient Near East agricultural farming Israel was most familiar with. And that's going to happen in the accounts of the creation of animals as well. Well, what about mushrooms? What about moss? What about uh, Venus flytraps? What about any of these types of plant life that aren't seed-bearing plants and trees with fruit? What about them? The text doesn't say. It doesn't even care to mention those things. That in and of itself tells us what the focus of this account is, the, the God of the covenant people. 
and of their world, and particularly their world in the land of Israel, which they're going to come into, whether we know of as modern Israel-Palestine or Canaan or the Levant or any of the terms you want to use. So this whole creation account is not telling the world, this is not written for us to do science from. It never was written for us to do science from. This was written to tell the covenant people the nature of the God that they serve and their place in the world in relationship to the rest of the world around them, in particular to their agricultural world. And so this says, this is how God brought about the, the seed-bearing plants and fruit with trees, trees with fruit with seed in it. Just those two types. So when we start asking about, well, what does the Bible teach about and fill in the blank, we have to be willing to go, it doesn't. It doesn't address it, at least not directly. It's not doing it. It's like, ask, it's like getting mad at a phone book because it doesn't have a good recipe in it. No, you go to a cookbook for a recipe. You go to a phone book for telephone numbers. You, you, you don't go to poetry for historical precision. You don't go to a dry history account for poetic beauty. So genre is key in all of this. And Genesis 1 is not, I don't care what creation museum you've been to or who you've seen debate Bill Nye about the Bible being perfectly scientifically accurate. It's, it's not, it's, that's not even what it's addressing remotely. It's not even trying to, to go down that trail. Does the Bible say things that can have scientific merit or can be scientifically falsified or verified? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a semi-concordist, so I, I think there is some concordance between science and scripture. Um, I think they're complementary. When both are read and interpreted correctly, when good science is done well, and when good literary analysis of scripture is done well, I do not see them in conflict. At least I have yet to, in 42 years, seen hardcore conflict. I've seen some tensions, and I've seen some differences for sure, uh, but being contradictory, I haven't seen it yet. Let's keep moving. <clears throat> so, God let the land to the land produce vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day, the third yom. Now, we come to a pivotal day in this in this six-day account. God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night, and let them serve as signs." to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, or in Hebrew it would be for authority over the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. Well, he also made the stars. Verse 17, God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. Now, this is the day that has um, caused a lot of discussion. Because as early as St. Augustine, and probably even before, early centuries of the church, people read that, and people in the ancient world weren't dumb. This is something that, you know, you, you'll hear guys like Sam Harris or something. They'll kind of make these disparaging remarks about how ignorant ancient people were. You got to be super smart to do things like build pyramids, you know, to, to work the earth, to develop agricultural calendars. You have to be observant. People in the ancient world weren't stupid. They may not have had the knowledge that we have in terms of scientific advancement, but they weren't dumb people. 
we're still working with the same stuff that they were working with in terms of brain power. Well, readers for a long time have read this and going, whoa, 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 time out. The sun and the moon were created on day four. What was giving light for the three days prior? How do you have a day? I mean, a day is just the, the sun rising and setting. Even, even before the idea, even before the Copernican Revolution, they still believed this, the day was measured as the relationship between the sun and us. So how do you have a day for three days before you, the sun is created? This was a problem. This was, people noticed this. This was not a modern scientific observation. And so for the long, I mean, for, for millennia, people have realized they've taken one of two approaches or maybe one of three. They've said, this is all just mythology and the author just didn't get it. And, and this is an example of why we know it's not true. It's just all nonsense. All right, fair enough. Um, the other approach has said, well, the days before were, it was God's supernatural light, God miraculously, it was heavenly light. It was the light of God's glory. It was whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay, well, none of that is said in the text. I mean, the text just a day seems to be a day throughout. So if we're going to be consistent, they just seem like normal days. So you've got a problem there and you're introducing something in the text that is not there at all. Another approach, and Augustine and others took this approach, and they said, this lets us know that whatever this author is saying or doing or wanting us to understand, he's not giving us a literal step-by-step -step precision unfolding account. This isn't, there is something non-chronological going on in this account. There is a deeper literary pattern or construct, and we get caught up on trying to put it in chronology, and then we miss that. Now, Augustine believed that, I believe Augustine said God created everything instantaneously and then just revealed it using the motif of a seven-day, six-day work week, something similar to that. But the point is, long before the Scopes monkey trial, long before Darwinian evolution, long before the modernist fundamentalist controversy of the 1900s, faithful readers of Scripture noticed these are not normal days. These yoms are something else. And there have been different opinions on it. Some have pointed to the Psalms or other passages that said, well, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. These could be thousand year periods of time just described in God's perspective as a day. Maybe. Uh, could be longer. If thousand year periods, why not million year periods? Why not billion year periods? That's what old earth creationists gravitate towards. Um, there, there are options for interpreting this because it is a literary account. It is a piece of literary work, primarily. It communicates literal truth, but it does it literarily, not literally. And that's a pitfall to avoid when reading it because we end up not doing justice to this Hebrew text. So on this Yom, God said, let there be lights. The lights are there, and we'll look at how this may play out in a minute. We'll get to it before we're done today. But the purpose of this is pretty cool. God doesn't say, let there be a sun and a moon. That's what you'd expect, sun and moon. But the words for sun and moon were also the names of pagan gods in the ancient world. You know, the Babylonians did worship moon gods, and uh, 
I believe even through the time of Muhammad, moon god was worshipped in, in, in Arabia. And the sun god, I mean, the Hebrew word for sun is Shemesh, and Shamash was the sun god that the Canaanites or other cultures worshipped. Well, the Hebrew text here goes out of its way to de-deify these entities, to, to, to uh, reduce them from the realm of the divine to just, yes, the bigger light and the little light. Oh yeah, and the stars. I mean, think how many people base their lives around the belief that the stars are divine and that the stars control their destiny. Even today, how many horoscopes? Oh, don't mind me. I'm just a Virgo. <laughs> That's why I'm an idiot. Like, people will use that to excuse themselves of all kinds of stuff. Oh, you know, Mercury must be in retrograde. That's why I was a jerk to you today in traffic. Or, I mean, I'm, I don't know astrology, honestly. I'm just pulling examples of vapid influencer type things that I've heard before but it's that kind of thing like people base their lives around the stars and they did they have for all time in all human history well the Genesis account says hey that's just a big light a little light and a bunch of other lights and their whole purpose is to give light on the earth and to mark seasons and times and years they are for human use they are tools to help you my people figure out Things like when it's time to plant crops, when a new month is about to happen, when a new year is about to happen. There's a purpose for these things, but it's not to worship them. It's it explore them, be in awe of them, you know, be overwhelmed by their glory, just like God took Abraham out in a few chapters forward from this and said, "Look up at the stars in the sky, see if you can count them." That's how your descendants are going to be. In this beautiful passage of Genesis 15, the stars and the sun and the moon. They had purposes, but those purposes were not that they were gods or that they were to be worshipped or that they in some way controlled your destiny in a way that God himself didn't. So the, the creation account is already knocking down other pagan concepts for Israel and saying, you have a different story. You are a different type of people. You're not like your neighbors in this regard. And let me tell you why. Let me give you some specifics. And so as, as a Babylonian or, or an Assyrian or an Egyptian or a Midianite or, or any of these ancient Near East peoples are sitting around the caravan campfire with a Hebrew, with an Israelite, and they're all swapping stories over dinner and telling the stories of their gods and, and, and talking about what they believe, which is what would happen on the caravans, then the Israelite story is presented and it would speak to the people in way in terms they could hear and resonate with, but would say a vastly different message than what they were used to from their own cosmologies. So it goes on. These, these lights are given specific rule, specific role. If they're going to govern something, it's not going to be humanity. It's said to govern the day and the night. They're going to be kind of ruling over that realm light and dark, not, you know, what job you get or who you fall in love with. Verse 20, God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea that literally in Hebrew, Tananim, it means sea monsters, sea serpent. It, it's, a, it's a word for big, scary stuff down in the depths. And, and this is before the age of Jacques Cousteau. This is before the age of Blue Planet. This is before the age of scuba gear. So the waters were seen as a terrifying place where you may not return from if you went down there. And sometimes when fishermen would pull up their nets, they would see gigantic teeth 
and chunks taken out of their bait or out of their nets or they knew there was scary stuff down there. And so in the creation account, God said, let the water team with living creatures. And, and, and the first one he mentions is these things that all the other people's fear, these sea serpents, sea monsters. It could be anything from crocodiles to, to sharks to whatever, whales. The King James actually says whales. Uh, it, it doesn't mean whales in and of itself. But it goes on and says, and uh, let, the, let the water team with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, every living and moving thing with which the waters team according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the water in the seas, let birds increase on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. So now God creates all of the things, all of the life that the ocean teems with. And it's interesting that ocean life is talked about first because where did all life come from according to most uh, evolutionary models is on earth. Life came from the oceans started there and then eventually spread to the lands. And so if you're reading Genesis alongside uh, biological, geological history, if you allow for some poetic phenomenological language or, or, or literary artistry, it's just a pretty interesting thing to note, to keep in mind. But regardless, God's, again, God's not trying to teach geology or biology. God said, let the land produce living creatures. Now we're verse 24. Let the land, there it is again, just like he said on day three, let the land produce vegetation. Now on day five, he says, let the land produce, and he uses this word, living creatures, nefesh chaya. Nefesh chaya. If you've seen the Disciple Dojo video, Black Panther on why animals have souls, this is what we talk about. This word literally means living souls or souls of life. He used it in the previous day, actually. He said, let the, uh, let the water team with living creatures, and it was nefesh chaya. So the biblical view, I'll say this once, and then go check the Black Panther video on our Superhero Seminary playlist on YouTube. The biblical view has never been that animals don't have souls. That's a later Platonic, monastic, Greco-Roman concept that crept into biblical theology that's never been accurate. In scripture, animals are living souls. That's just, we got to let that sit and let that do with our theology what it does. They aren't human souls, but they are living souls, souls of life, nefesh chaya. So God said, let the land produce these. Again, the land is bringing forth life. The earth is bringing forth animal life in this instance. So, so again, I imagined as a kid that God was just like, boom, lion, boom, tiger, giraffe, boom, badger, you know, like all these animals and he's just pop, 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 and they're popping up in the garden of Eden and everybody's running around happy. You know, the text doesn't say that. Let the land bring forth living creatures. So again, whatever that does for your evolutionary biology, theology, let it do it. But God says it. The land is what brings forth life. And that is the method by which God creates. It's not either or. Like we tell our kids, God made you special. And we tell them, mommy and daddy made you in mommy's belly. <laughs> however, however scientifically precise you parents want to be age appropriately. The point is those aren't, those aren't in conflict because the making you, mommy and daddy love each other. You grew in mommy's belly. 
that is the process by which God created everything to run to begin with. So he's the author. So God is the one knitting you together in your mother's womb. But you are being knit together in your mother's womb. There's both. It's creation is joined in with God, the creator, in bringing forth. It's like the creator gives the creation the ability to be creative. That'll preach, pastors that are needing a sermon title. Keep that in mind, though. That's the type of God we serve. And this entire account has creativity written all over it. Because this entire account is presenting God as an ancient Near East worker going through a typical work week. What did you do if you were a Hebrew uh, back during the second millennium? Would you, you'd get up, you would work, you'd do something. Then the day's over, there's evening, there's morning, the first day. Then you'd get up again, because evening, morning, you're sleeping in between. Then you'd get up again and you'd start working on something else. You'd finish it. There'd be evening, morning, the second day. Then you'd get up and do something else. Evening, morning, third day. After six of those, on the seventh day, what would you do? You would rest. The creation account, God is patterning himself for his people in this account as an ancient artisan, as an ancient agriculturalist. He's working with the earth or he's building or crafting creation or he's there's there's the, the, the images are fluid. The metaphors malleable. But this is what we see God doing as his way of presenting creation. He's not a cosmic wizard pointing like Tim, the enchanter in Monty Python, boom, 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 and creating these special things. He's, he's not a distant and aloof deity that has no involvement that just speaks and then steps back and lets everything unwind. He's involved, but he's sovereign. He's imminent, but he's omnipresent. There's God of Israel as a paradoxical God in many ways. And so in this, he's this fifth day, he's created the living creatures in the sea and the, the winged birds, according to their kinds. And then on the sixth day that we're at now, he's the land has produced living creatures. And it only mentions, once again, three types of living creatures. God says, let the land produce living creatures, nefesh chaya, according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals, according to their kinds, the livestock, according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Just three. This doesn't mention the myriad animals that exist in the world that don't fit into those three categories. Just like it didn't mention the myriad plants that exist in the world that don't fit into the two plant categories. But what, what categories of animals are these? Well, livestock, that's how Israel lives. That's their method of living and being. That's their currency, that's their provision, that's their shelter, that's their clothing, that's their food, that's their milk. Livestock, things that move on the ground, things that scurry, things that eat their crops, things that get into their homes, mice, rats, rodents, things that scurry on the ground, and wild animals, things out there that aren't domesticated that you've got to protect your livestock from, things that are wild animals. They're free roaming. They, they aren't domestic. So you're just getting three types of animals, but they are the three types of animals that ancient Near East agriculturalist Israel was daily familiar with. 
So what about the dinosaurs? Daily Israelites were not familiar with dinosaurs. So there's no reason for them to even be discussed in this because they were, if scientific accuracy, if science is true, they were dead long before humans ever came on the scene. So why would Israel need to know about these animals in other parts of the world that are buried well under the earth that have no relevance or meaning to Israel being in the land as God's covenant people? They don't. Just like Israel doesn't need to know about penguins. Israel doesn't need to know about kangaroos. Israelites didn't. That's why these things aren't mentioned specifically. Again, get the Noah's Ark happy nursery pictures in your mind out of your mind when you're reading the text. It doesn't go into all of that detail. It doesn't, you, you, you know, you can go to creation museums, you can go to Ark Encounters, you can go to these young earth creationist places, and you'll hear all this science about how, you know, dinosaurs were on the Ark. And, you know, uh, when the flood happened, you know, every animal, literally every animal on the earth was two of each were on the ark. And this is how physically it could have worked out. And, and it's just, I'm like, that's an exercise in speculation that the text has no interest in whatsoever. The text has no interest in answering those questions or even going down that route whatsoever. Because it's trying to do something else. It's trying to do something specific. And here we have the, the, the culmination of this on this sixth day. Just like on the third day, we had two things created, the land and the plants. Now on this sixth day, we have to have two things created, the animals. And now we're going to come to what it's all been leading up to. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock over all the earth and over all creatures that move along the ground. So now God says, let us make Adam. And Adam becomes Adam in Genesis, 2, in Genesis 2, and it becomes the name of a particular man. But Adam just means humanity. And it's not gendered language like we would think of today because Adam, we're about to see, is male and female. They together are Adam. And that's what God brings on. And their purpose is going to be let them rule over. Older translations may say have dominion over. Um, the, the, it's like the, the image of a vice regent, someone ruling in place of another. It's God's creation. It's God's world, his creation. Humanity is put in place to be stewards, to, be, um, to, to rule in place of the one true owner. And they're given this mandate over all the things that have come before. So here's the mind-blowing thing for ancient readers of this. All those other things mentioned, uh, all those other fish of the sea, birds of the air, livestock, the earth, creatures that move along the river, all those things in other cultures were worshipped as deity or as some way connected with the divine. Every element of this creation account that we've gone through so far was deified by some people in the ancient Near East. But the Genesis account, all of the deity is removed and the authority is put not in the hands of some unknown, obscure, inaccessible, divine entity. It's put in the hands of Adam, humanity. Humanity is to rule over. Now, rule over does not mean exploit, destroy, ruin, all the things that environmentalists talk about, that Christians get a bad rap, 
they say, well, the Bible teaches that we should just, just you know, do what we want with creation. Absolutely not. If I hand somebody the keys to my car and say, hey, I got to go on a trip. I'm going away for a while. Um, when you drop me off at the airport, you can keep my car. Just take care of it. It, it. Consider it yours until I get back. If I come back and my car has been entered into a demolition derby or has just been destroyed on the inside, I am not going to be happy. The person did not do a good job being a steward of what I entrusted to them. That's creation. I post on social media all the time, creation, uh, creation care, hashtag creation care, because that's what we're called to do. We are called to steward, to care for this thing that we are ruling over because it's not ours. It's not ours. The earth does not belong to us. That's why we're supposed to take care of it. So Christians, it's not tree hugging hippie nonsense to take care of the environment. It's not some left-wing progressive godless agenda to not destroy the earth. Recycling is not a satanic plot related to the mark of the beast. I mean, these are, these are things that Christians have somehow imbibed that are just absolute unbiblical lunacy. Followers of Jesus should be leading the charge to take care of this planet, to take care of the animals, the nefesh chaya, the living creatures that we share it with. Not because they're our brother and sister, but because they are entrusted to us by their creator and our creator. That's what biblical creation stewardship consists of because there is a God who created this earth and cares about it. That is why we too care about and take care of and don't pillage, exploit, rape the resources of this planet. That's a whole other sermon that you could preach from this, that more Christians should preach from this. And that, doesn't mean you are, that doesn't mean you start singing Kumbaya, you start hugging trees, you start um, you know, say, believing that any consumption of meat is automatically murder, or any of this stuff that you can, you can take anything and go to an extreme. But a biblical grounded creation view is very ecologically um, responsible and environmentalist. There's a great book, Richard Balkum, The Bible and Ecology. I highly recommend it. Short book, it's right over there on the shelf behind me. The Bible and Ecology by Richard Balkum, B-A-U-C-H-B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. Fantastic biblical scholar and, and, and writes about these issues. And, and the Christian call for caring for the environment. We're coming up on the end of this hour, so let me just finish. Uh, we'll pick up next week in this section. We come now to the first poem in the Bible, the very first poem that there is. It says, so God created man, Adam, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam is the image of God. Adam is created. What does image of God mean? Is it his rationality? Is it his creativity? Is it the, the ability to rule over? Maybe, but according to the tripartite Hebrew poem where it says one thing, it says it again, and then it says it a third way. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. So Adam is both him and them. All cre God created throughout. And then image of God is male and female in parallelism. So whatever else the image of God is, it consists of humanity's maleness and femaleness together. 
This is why gender matters to followers of Jesus. This is why sex and gender are not easily separable. This is why we do not believe that gender is just a social construct. Gender stereotypes are a social construct. Gender expressions are social constructs. Absolutely. The whole, you know, well, well, women should be barefoot pregnant in the home. Men should have short hair. Women should wear skirts. Men should wear pants. Men, that's all crazy. I mean, go to Scotland. The manliest guys in the world will be running around in skirts. I dare you to call them a skirt, too. The point is that gender expressions change over time. Even short hair, long hair, all that kind of stuff. So whether you like pink or whether you like blue, I mean, that didn't even come around until World War II. Before then, it was switched, and pink was for boys and blue was for girls. Look that up. That's actually true. Gender stereotypes and expressions can change, but the concept of gender itself is innate to the human experience. Now, does that mean that some people can, can experience gender dysphoria? Absolutely. We'll see in Genesis 3 that why this world is not the way it should be, the way it was originally intended to be. But people are born with many different challenges, with many different maladies, with many different things not being correct in terms of how they should have been in an ideal world. People are born blind. People are born deaf. People are born with all types. So, yes, can there be people that are born with conditions where gender is not as easy for them to, to, to comprehend or to feel or to experience? Absolutely. Can people be born with sexual biological differences from the norm that make it even hard to tell what gender they are? Absolutely. Are these things real? Absolutely. But the wholesale movement in our culture over the past just a few years, not even 10 years, towards gender being this only what you self-identify, what are your pronouns? What are you, that, we can't go there. I mean, I can go there in terms of if that's what you believe, I'll treat you with love, with dignity. I won't try to, to, to criminalize you. I won't try to antagonize you. I'll, I'll call you what you ask me to call you when I'm talking to you personally. But, but that is an example. That, that's different than this wholesale abandonment of the idea that gender is something that is fixed, that gender is something that is related to biological sex. Uh, we readers of scripture can't go, we just can't go there because for us, gender is sacred because it's what it means to be in the image of God. The maleness and the femaleness and the complementarity of those two together are what defines humanity. And so while there can be exceptions to that, while there can be fringe cases, while there can be aberrations that need to be dealt with in a loving way, in a compassionate way, in a friendly way, the core teaching itself, we can't abandon that without abandoning our faith, without abandoning a very key core part of who we are as Adam created in God's image. We're out of time. It's been an hour, uh, but you could spend a whole semester on Genesis 1. We're not. We're going to pick it up next week. We're going to come back to this creation day, this yom, and, and look at Adam and then move into uh, Genesis 2. And so that's how this format, until we get to Abraham, Genesis 12, we're going to be doing this. We're going to just be walking through the text uh, 